This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Right now, it is the morning of Wednesday, May 20th. Uh, markets today are up and up. Um, Dow's up a little over 396 points at this moment in time. S&P's up 48 points. Uh, the VIX is down slightly, uh, or actually quite a bit, 6.71%. Uh, hovering right now around uh, 28.50. Um, as, as it currently stands, the 10-year Treasury is at 0.716. Uh, um, so, you know, yesterday was a slight down day, and then um, Monday we had a gangbusters day in the market with the Dow up nearly 1,000. I was up 900-something at the end of the day. Um, and a lot of this has been, you know, priced due to, you know, some good, some good news and movement on a vaccine, uh, which, in which we could potentially have, you know, a few million, few million kits uh, this fall. So, so good progress on that front. Um, Grant, what else do we want to say about the market? Uh, what's going on? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. We finally got some good news about a vaccine. So we saw a big boost in the market. We also saw on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, Fed Chair Jerome Powell come out and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, said he, like Warren Buffett, wouldn't uh, bet against the U.S. economy in the long run and that this may be a little bit slower of a recovery, but overall will we'll be good. One other bit of insight is uh, listening to SoftBank come out with, with their earnings. They took significant losses and they actually revalued their what there was, WeWork investment at 47 billion down to 2.9 billion. And I think that's gonna be a really interesting one to follow, especially as we think about WeWork's business model about having a bunch of startup companies together in, in, one, in one office, how that's gonna impact them moving forward and, and to see uh, what happens there. Also notably from, from SoftBank, Jack Ma, which we, who we talked about is a pretty uh, significant global figure as the CEO of Alibaba, he just stepped down from, from SoftBank as well. So it's just just interesting to see how uh, SoftBank has been uh, hit by the coronavirus as well. Yeah, and, and if I'm not mistaken, you know, they were kind of the bank behind a lot of the new tech unicorns we've been seeing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, their their head, Masa-san, is, is known as one of the, the best tech investors uh, historically, and he says don't bet against him. <laughs> Actually, in the earnings call, he compared himself to uh, Jesus Christ himself and that people went against him. Uh, and so, you know, if you're an investor comparing yourself to Jesus Christ, you better come back with some pretty significant returns. <laughs> yeah, you got to be walking on water, uh, so to speak, uh, <laughs> or healing people, I suppose. But yeah, I, um, I mean, another big thing we should be looking out for is uh, – you know, the New York Stock Exchange is going to partially open on May 26th. Uh, they're going to have some new safety parameters. You know, floor brokers are going to return in small numbers. They're going to have protective masks. But it is going to be interesting to see, you know, the, um, you know it reopening on the 26th after they've been shut down since uh, March 23rd there. Absolutely. And we, and we did talk about it on a previous podcast, but I think this was a little bit more symbolic as we 
have moved a lot more towards electronic trading over the years. But the first time that the physical trading floor of the big board has ever been shut down, I think it's really symbolic. And I think it's a good step that we're, we're now beginning to, to reopen. One thing to note, though, as you mentioned, is a majority of the designated market makers who oversee the listed companies on the New York Stock Exchange will continue to work remotely. So there will be a small number of floor brokers, but mostly symbolic. But I, I still think it's a it's a it's a win. Yeah, definitely. Um, and likewise, they're going to, you know, have to avoid public transportation, which, which is going to be difficult, um, you know, living in that city. Um, but, but yeah, uh, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it works under those conditions. Um, but, you know, that's the semblance of uh, normalcy um, coming back. And like you said, it's, you know, mostly symbolic, but it's, but it's good to see. And we're looking at unemployment benefits, uh, Americans received $48 billion in April, which is a record in terms of total payout and increase. Uh, but the total could have been, you know, over $90 billion uh, had there not been as many administrative delays and and other things. Uh, and then this is according to, you know, researchers on the Hamilton product uh, project. So, uh, Grant, what do we think? I mean, one, we got, you know, the sheer largest record in unemployment benefits, but the payout could have been, you know, nearly twice as much as it would have been. So I, I guess, you know, what do we think about that and what are some of the factors involved? It's, it's the numbers are just staggering. So as you mentioned, April's 48 billion payout, that was larger than the first four months in 2009, which was the peak in the great recession. So just to give a little context, that, that April number is staggering. And the fact that you just mentioned that it could be even bigger if there weren't for processing delays and everything, is really eye-opening to see how drastically we uh, we have people who were laid off and furloughed, and uh, we saw some other numbers come out last week that an additional, I think it was above two million people got laid off, continued. So I think that brought our total to 36 million uh, laid off just in the last eight weeks, which is which is pretty significant. Uh, we are seeing that there is the the, the $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus that we had in March is helping with some joblessness. But overall, I, I think it's interesting to see how now they're starting to talk a little bit more about future coronavirus relief. It uh, seems like Republicans are wary of taxpayers, where Democrats are, are really trying to, to push for more spending. So do you think we're going to be able to get more more future corona relief, relief Drew? Yeah, I think there will definitely be something. Um, it won't be, you, you know, they, 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 it won't be to the extent of, you know, that three trillion most likely. But I, I do think there are promising things. Um, I mean, there's there's going to be provisions for increased testing capacity, uh, and the Republicans want some more liability protections. But you know, we we've talked about the numbers. I mean, at this point, we're you know, if you're hovering around 15% unemployment, um, and, and we've talked about this before, I mean, you know, you have almost half the country that can't afford a $500 rainy day fund. Well, uh, you know, we've had our emergency, uh, we've had our emergency for about two and a half months now and, and it's slowly abetting, but you know, most people are going to remain unemployed and, you know, they still got to pay rent. They still got to buy food and everything else. So, so we're in that crisis mode and, I, I just think people are going to need more relief um, for sure. I completely agree. I just, it's just going to see if we're able to, to get that. And 
I think that we should be wary about how much we actually are are spending for, for the taxpayer and, and where that money is going. We've talked about it multiple times that they had to act fast, but there's still continuing talks about how the small business loans have, have been given out and how companies are, are going to use it. So it's just interesting how we, we're trying to throw money at a problem. I, it's good to see that there's a little bit more thought going on in Washington this time around. Yeah. Um, I mean, what it's really opening the way for is the likelihood of, you know, increased taxes and, you know, a significant revision of uh, previous tax cuts, um, you know, right. I mean, so right now, our deficit, our national debts, you know, at, at 25.1 trillion. Um, but, you know, within four years, according to some analysis, it could balloon, you know, up to 70% more uh, to go up to 42 trillion. Uh, you know, when we look back to 2016, we just had, you know, we had 20 trillion in debt. So the numbers certainly skyrocketing. We haven't had a budget surplus since 2000. Um, so all of that writing on the wall just kind of highlights that there's a good chance we're going to need, you know, new tax rates and uh, we're going to need more revenue coming in. I definitely think that's that's coming down the pipe sooner rather than later, especially as as you just mentioned, our our three trillion dollar historical relief bill in March. Uh, also, we had the tax cut in 2000 and uh, 2017 or, or 16. It's fading me now, but that has really decrease the amount of money that the government is pulling in because taxes are the primary resource of revenue. And so we've seen uh, individual individual tax cuts and, and corporate tax cuts. So uh, also an increase in spending. So decreasing how you're getting revenue and increasing your spending is just obviously drastically increasing, increasing that deficit. So I, I can see taxes being raised in, in the next probably six to eight years. Yeah. I mean, individual income and payroll taxes uh, combined, those account for 85% of money collected by the government. Um, at least that was last year. Um, you know, so and when we're looking at things like social security and Medicare, those together are 41% of, you know, federal spending, um, our population's only getting older. Uh, so, you know, more people kind of are moving to that side of the dole, which they need, you know, um, you know, the, uh, the government uh, med medical coverage, and then, then also, you know, they're getting uh, checks and disability checks in the form of Social Security. So that really, it's really going to be something we have to, you know, reevaluate. And um, we've certainly talked about how the tax cuts have been, you know, they were initial impetus, especially for, you know, the huge stock market gains we saw in the first couple of years. So I wonder how much those gets limited, you know, when we come out of recession and we come out of a, you know, a COVID-19 crisis, if we're going to have to raise taxes, what the stock market will look like in response. Yeah, that's a great point. We, we could see it ha have a little impact on the stock market. Also, another thing to look at is just the state and local governments, because there's also seeing a, a huge decline in revenue because they're not getting their income tax or, or sales tax. Uh, so I, I think overall, I think we're going to see a, a nationwide in, increase in, in taxes, especially. I think um, one segment of businesses, you know, we, we focused on meat last week and we focus on airlines, but it's, there's a good potential that, 
you know, one out of four restaurants will go out of business. Um, this is forecast done by Open Table. Uh, we see that reservations are down 95% from a year ago, uh, and that's despite the fact that almost every state has, you know, had some loosening and restrictions at this point. Um, you know, states are on phase one. Uh, some states like Montana will go to phase two here shortly on June 1st, which is 75% capacity. But states all across the country are opening up. And at that point, we still have reservations down, you know, 95%. Uh, because, you know, there's going to be people who are still concerned, especially people who are, you know, elderly or they have some serious underlying condition. Uh, and that's going to prevent, you know, a huge segment of the population that would otherwise uh, you know, especially elderly people typically have had more time to eat at restaurants, right? So, um, so yeah, that's going to be, it's going to be an interesting segment, um, seeing how many places, you know, end up closing, um, and, you know, open table, you know, has services for about, uh, provide services for about 60,000 restaurants. So, you know, the, the ability to conduct a survey is, is quite extensive. I think this stats kind of, you know, obviously the reservations are down, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> a lot of states aren't open and if they are, they have a lot of restrictions on restaurants where they can only be at half capacity or a quarter capacity and you have to have masks on and, you know, and, and as you said, consumers may not just want to go out to eat, they're fine with takeout. So I, I, I think that this stats a bit like, Oh no shit, Sherlock a little mm -hmm. bit, but um <laughs> I, I think the other stat that we saw come out from the National Restaurants Association is that restaurants lost more than 30 billion in sales in March and 50 billion in April. So, you know, they have seen a, a huge drop in in demand. And also a, another thing is, I think supplies have also increased, right? So it's almost a perfect storm for them. We've seen, as we talked about last week on the podcast, that meat prices are, are now spiking because there's a drop in supply and that has a direct impact on restaurants because now their costs are going to be raised on having to, to get food for, to, to provide to customers. So overall, it seems like it's a little bit of a, a perfect storm for restaurants at the moment. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of in the same dance airlines are at, right? So we have the least amount of flights going out and people flying since the jet age. I mean, uh, and restaurants were like kind of in a similar vein where, um, you know, we haven't seen something like this in, well, in terms of restaurants, you know, got decades. So it, it's, it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting segment to be looking at. We saw, you know, Jerome Powell just recently said that the GDP could shrink more than 30%, but at the same time, he's not seen another depression because you're going to have better fundamentals, you know, coming out of the thing. Uh, you know, what do we, we've heard, we've heard, you know, numbers of contractions like this, but I do think it gives more credence to the fact that, you know, we've got the federal reserve chairman, you know, discussing, discussing that 30% contraction. So, uh, you know, what, what do we think about that? And, um, you know, what's our take on Jerome right now? Again, uh, I, I think the fed's doing, uh, doing a lot that, that our people are overlooking. And I think we haven't seen the, Fed chair come on until Ben Bernanke came on uh, in 2009 to talk about what the Fed's doing. And I think it gives people a little reassurance. I, I, I did like a lot of what Jerome Powell said. He said that the current distress with the dynamic ability of the U.S. 
markets right now, and then the strength of our financial system should pave the way for a significant rebound. And I think our, our, our guest, Jonathan, who came on the podcast last week uh, or two weeks ago, said that after 2009, we saw our banking system where stronger banks took over smaller banks, and now we have one of the best banking systems in the world. So our financial system is, is rather strong. And an, another key point that I uh, was eye-opening to me and is that this downturn is not caused by uh, you know, an asset bubble like we saw with the mortgage, uh, subprime mortgage in 2007, 2008, and then also the, the tech.com bubble, but it, it's rather more than a self-induced economic freeze is the terms that he used. Uh, to in order to combat the coronavirus. So once we actually come back from this, uh, he, he says that it, it won't be as fast as the end of the year, but that we will recover and we'll be back up to, in the, if we just use the stock market, we will see new highs in that. Um, so it may be more of this U-shaped recovery. He didn't want to give a, give a letter, but uh, he, it seemed like what he was saying is, is more U-shaped. It's also a different dynamic in the sense that, you know, we have a Congress that's passed close to $3 trillion in rescue funds, um, you know, where there's discussions of more active, you know, an activist role the Fed can pay, play and, and more stuff we can do on a, a fiscal level. I mean, when you look back at the Depression, uh, you just had a Republican uh, president, you know, uh, Herbert Hoover, who didn't want to do anything, right? So, I mean, if people were living in a shack, they'd call them Hoovervilles. Um, so, you, you that's a very different dynamic to today where, you know, all pretty much everyone's on the same page. I mean, there seems to be more bickering than everywhere and, and, you know, than there's ever been, but in terms of what an activist role, the fed needs to play and how much, uh, you know, and the fact that you've, the Congress really has to play a Keynesian role. That's, there's not even really any been any serious debate about that. Um, which is wild, right? Because, you know, normally there'd be huge, huge, discussions on you know i mean the last round there was huge discussions on the role of a auto bailout and in and, and 2000 and, and you know in the 2008 crisis and 2009 um we're just not hearing that now you know between bailing out companies and between you know providing universal basic income uh something that just didn't even register in most people's minds a couple of years ago so the dynamics are just so much different not only from the depression but from from the last recession, you know, which occurred 11 years ago, um, you know, Congress is on board and, and you have, you know, a very activist Fed. So, so you're not even having these huge ideological debates. Everyone's kind of on one page, uh, which is crazy to think about because it certainly doesn't feel that way. But I mean, I mean, there it is. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It It, it is eye opening to see how people were just always bashing the bailouts and now they're they're talking about all these small business loans and, and no one is really worried about it right now. I wonder if we look back in two, three years from now and then people will say, oh, why do we have that small business loan program or why did the Fed do this uh, or take that big of actions to cut interest rates that fast? So I, I'm sure when, as we, as we think about look back as everything, uh, it will be interesting to see how people talk about this and the actions of the Fed. Uh, one thing that is a little bit historic that the Fed has done is is they, for the first time now, have uh, purchased ETFs. So they purchased they were in order to uh, help intervene in the U.S. corporate debt markets. Uh, so we saw that them with BlackRock, they actually started to to purchase uh, 
more U.S. corporate debts, where historically they mostly just help with the with the treasuries. So, Drew, what's your take on the Fed taking a step like this? I mean, there hasn't, as you mentioned, no one has really had any blowback on this historic step. Yeah, I mean, um, according to the data from from last Thursday, you know, the Federal Reserve's bought three hundred and five million dollars of exchange traded funds. Um, so this is really a historic intervention in what is, you know, geared towards, you know, U.S. corporate uh, debt markets. Um, so, you know, the, I, I don't know. It's, 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 just, it's just kind of a, it's a wild tool. Um, you know, it's been so-called, it's a, you know, on, on March 23rd, they announced, you know, the secondary market corporate, you know, credit facility. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just, it's, it's just kind of uncharted territory, so to speak. It is, it's, it, it, but it's another historic step that I think, you know, before we would have never seen the Fed engaging in, in the uh, corporate debt market. And now we're seeing them take a, take a big step. Uh, one other thing that we should mention right now uh, is how hard the, uh, some of the poorest households have been hit in the United States. We saw that 39% of people living in households that had incomes less than 40,000 had job losses. And I think this is somewhat expected because they were in these lower paying service industries such as restaurant and bars. And we previously had mentioned how hard that those sectors have been hit. Drew, what's your take on, on how hard these households have been hit and, and what's the recovery going to be like for them? Yeah, we haven't really talked too much about wealth bifurcation on this podcast in general, but, you know, from Federal Reserve numbers going back from, I think it's uh, 1987 to 2018, I'll, I'll, I'll take a look and um, put the source in the asterisk in the, in the show notes. But, you know, functionally, you saw over $20 trillion going to, you know, the wealthiest 1%. And during that 20-year time frame, uh, the poorest 50% of households, you know, lost $900 billion in assets. So it's certainly existed, you know, prior to this crisis in, in levels we haven't seen since, since the great depression in the 1920s era. Um, but now, you know, you're, you're just throwing kerosene on all of this stuff. Uh, and you know, it's, it's tough. It will be tough not to look at the economy and the country after this, you know, apart from a context of, you know, haves and, and have nots. Uh, I mean, when you're looking at, you know, people with, with college educations, they're much more likely to be able to work remotely than people with high school educations. In fact, the majority of the population with college education has the opportunity to work re remotely. And then, you know, people, people with just a high school education or less, um, you know, they're, they're probably going to be in a position where they're getting furloughed or, and, and, and laid off. Um, so, you know, they're a big, big segment of the population that, that is, you know, that's representing now roughly 15% unemployment numbers and, uh, you know, come to mention it. I mean, we have what, like, it's roughly 32% of the American population is is college grads. I mean, so you, so your average, your average American is a high school grad, um, you know, by, by, by large numbers. Uh, and, you know, they can't work remotely and, you know, rent and, and food bills and everything else has, 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 has maintained steady, you know, you got to pay to live, but at the same time, um, you know, they're, they're completely furloughed and, um, definitely worried about the future and living in a country where, you know, people are already being squeezed out on the margins. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's definitely, definitely something we have to be looking at, you know, immensely carefully um, because 
when we're looking at our Gini coefficient levels and any other metric you want to look at, you know, the health of a country and inequality, I think it's going to be a lot worse on, on the way out of this thing than, than it was before. Um, not to mention it was, you know, it wasn't great before it was, it, it, it's been, it's been, it's been growing the last 30 years and I'm afraid inequality is only going to be worse. Unfortunately, I think you're right. Uh, we, we saw the Fed come out and there's a bunch of different questions in their annual economic well-being of the U.S. households, quite the name there. But uh, a, a lot of the data is, is pretty much saying what you're saying is mirroring what you're saying. One question found that 30 percent adults said they couldn't cover three months of living expenses in the case of job loss. And we may be headed that way, especially as we see states reopen and there could be this the second bounce of uh, or second spike of cases, really. Uh, so it, it it is interesting to see. I think we're going to continue to see the the wealth wealth gap really increase after after this, especially as companies may be looking at their efficiencies and how how they may not need as many workers as, as they had before. And as you mentioned, the restaurant and bar industry and, and our leisure and hospitality alone have seen payrolls just fall off a cliff and. and that may be the case as we may, it may take a while for consumers to come back into, uh, into those industries. So only time will tell. Yeah, no, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly a difficult situation. And, uh, I mean, you're going to have conversations on the nature of, a, you know, being essential too, right? Because I mean, it's store clerks and it's a lot of people that, you know, might've been overlooked in terms of, you know, the gears and cogs of, of, you know, the United States economy, but, you know, in a, in something like a pandemic they're they're proven to be vital to keep things, you know, up and running for everybody. So, uh, I mean, there might be a broader philosophical conversation on what is the value of work, but, uh, I, you know, I, I think in two years, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy how quickly people can forget things. So, um, so I'm not, not necessarily geared to that, but, but it's, it's quite possible. That grant, is there anything else you're, uh, you know, kind of, we should be looking at? Yeah. One thing that I think is, is interesting is the deal of, of Uber trying to take over Grubhub. You know, the timing of it is certainly a response to the coronavirus as we've seen. Uh, I, I know your Uber Eats ticket has spiked, but I think you're not alone there with yeah. <laughs> uh, people <laughs> people mostly ordering online and, and having delivery. So it's interesting to see how the, the Uber and, and Grubhub will, will shake out. It seems like Grubhub told them no, but uh, Uber's not going away softly. So just continuing to see how that deal uh, works out. Also to see if there's any, any mergers and acquisitions here as, as we continue to see some of the smaller firms feel the pain of the coronavirus and a decrease in demand across a lot of sectors. So. Uh, just seeing to maybe see if there's any merger acquisition uptake in the coming months. What about yourself? So oil prices certainly seem to show signs of improving demand, uh, which is, you know, something that's, that's vital. I mean, you saw West Texas intermediate July crude futures were up a dollar and 22 cents. Um, you know, the inventories dropped by, um, you know, millions, several millions of barrels. Um, so, so that's going to be very important to see because, you know, the, Fundamentals of the oil um, markets have not, have not been great, obviously, and you know we've discussed the fact that uh, the United States is now has become a net exporter. So you know, looking at the broad macro 
uh, fundamentals of energy is, is very important. And, um, and yeah, it seems like, you know, demands kind of firmed up a little bit. So it's going to be important to see if that, if that persists. Um, but, but right now, uh, things have, you know, seem to have improved. And with that, you know, we hope you're all staying safe out there. Uh, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.